0: The battle plan was then to systematically break down all the communications that the Iraqis had so that they were unable to control their forces and also to destroy as many of their forces as possible.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out oh, there you want to
0: lose I, feel, I, I
2: did feel a lot of regret. My friends were still getting killed.
0: It got to the point where you know you're going to humans quite Pill often. i lead under fire. And
1: that was a heavy responsibility I guess mm. on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself time. is
0: horrific. It's a horror story. You should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what, what you can do for yourself or what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was in effect you to put your life on the line.
1: Chris Oxenbold was a Rear Admiral in the Royal Australian Navy. He joined in 1962 and transferred from the full-time service to the Naval Reserves in 1999. Among other deployments, Chris was the commander of the Royal Australian Navy Task Group during the First Gulf War. In the Gulf, his task group became part of the largest grouping of warships seen since the end of World War II. It's been said that it was probably the most powerful and complex naval force ever assembled. This is Chris's conversation. With Angus Horden. I'm Angus Horden
2: speaking today with Chris Oxenbold. Chris, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank
0: you very much, Angus.
2: Chris, let's go right back. Tell us about your early childhood.
0: My early childhood was carefree, a very fortunate childhood. I was born in Sydney and my parents and our home was at Seaforth. Shortly after World War II, 1946, when I was born, it was a new neighbourhood and it was uh, a very close knit community. There were lots of young kids about my age, lots of bush, so that there was lots of uh, fun and adventure and it was uh, a lot of fun. Most of it, or a, a large deal of it, involved things to do with the water and the sea, a lot of swimming, hiring canoes down at Clontaugh, trying to build our own boats. There was a love of the sea. One of our neighbours had a series of motor cruisers and he had two children who were about my age. And we spent a lot of time on these cruises around the Hawkesbury River, Pittwater and Sydney Harbour. From this I developed a, a love for the sea, messing about in boats which ultimately led me to join the Navy. I started sailing at about 10, joined the Middle Harbour Sailing Club. And uh, a few years later, had my own boat, spent as much time as I could sailing up until the time that I joined the Navy.
2: And Chris, did you go to school and was there any military training at the school?
0: The school I went to was shore and they had a cadet unit and also an air training corps. I was in the Air Training Corps, but I was only at shore for three years up to my intermediate level and then joined the Navy as a 15-year-old cadet. And at school, did you play many sports? Rugby during the winter, but most of my time at shore in the summer, I would spend sailing. So I didn't play many sports with the school during the summer period.
2: So you didn't have anyone directly who was in the Navy, you just had a love of the sea love of the water.
0: There was no direct family connection. However, my father had a very keen interest in the Navy. Also in the community that I lived in at Seaforth, there were a couple of naval officers who lived nearby and there are other people who had connections with the Navy as well. And the family who had the motor cruiser, Dick Wills, he was in the merchant Navy during World War II. And so there are there a lot of connections there. I, w- I was very much aware of the Naval College and the opportunity that was provided to join the Navy at a young age. In fact, I was aware of the 13-year-old entry and it was only a few years before I was eligible for that that they stopped that entry and so the youngest age you could join the Navy was at 15.
2: So when you did join the Navy, which college did you go to? Was it
0: Creswell? Yes, it was the Royal Australian Naval College at Creswell, Jarvis Bay.
2: I served at Creswell as well and I, I must say I personally love that base. I think everyone who's served there come away with great feelings and great
0: stories? Oh, without doubt. And I spent over four years there at Jarvis Bay. So it was a long time. The initial training was quite tough. The first year was quite tough and it was uh, challenging. It was a great, great college. I became completely institutionalised and enjoyed every aspect of it. There were lots of sporting opportunities. There were lots of opportunities to go sailing. There was a good education provided. In particular, it was going through it with a a cohort of people who became lifelong friends and the relationships and friendships that were formed, sharing that experience that we had at the Naval College and later on in life.
2: Chris, much is said of not so much the brutality, but perhaps the harshness of the early training. What was it like on base? Like what time did you get up in the morning, you know, your drilling, your exercise, your PT runs?
0: The standard time of getting up in the morning was 6.25. The Ravalli was sounded at 6.25 and you quickly got out of your cabin and in the winter you immediately did some PT at at 6.30. In the summer you had to go down to the swimming pool and uh, have a swim before you came back and had breakfast at seven o'clock in the morning and, and the day's routines started. In the first year it was pretty tough. It was based on the Royal Naval College in in England and, and British public schools and there was a strong discipline there. For myself I was uh, 15 years old, prepubescent, overweight, unfit when I jo- joined the Navy and so I found it very tough that, that first year. I lost a lot of weight and grew 20 centimetres in a year. Uh, So I changed quite dramatically and um, was able to deal with it a lot easier. But it was mainly the first term was hard getting used to the routines. But once you did get used to the routines, it became quite normal and easy to uh, to tolerate.
2: As you find with all people in training, because you're sharing it with other guys, it became easier because you're all sharing it together.
0: Without doubt. They were common experiences and and that's why I think those friendships have lasted so long because it was a difficult time. but One of the, the strengths and one of the abilities to get through it was that you knew everybody else was going through the same thing and they were able to cope with it so you should be able to cope with it. And then we went on later in life and shared things such as getting married and, and having children and those important milestones within your life, which were we all shared together and uh, formed very strong, lifelong friendships, which uh, still exist.
2: So your instructors down at Creswell, were a lot of them from the war itself?
0: Many of them had war service. This was uh, it's 1962. So 16 years, 16 to 20 years after the end of World War II, my first captain at the Naval College was uh, Eric Peel and he was a World War II veteran.
2: So I imagine you would have not so much been in awe of them but it, it was a real level of training that you don't readily get today?
0: You were certainly in awe of them and it was what you expected at, at the time as well. I can remember, as I said, Captain Peel uh, at the interview board uh, before joining the Navy, I found him quite frightening in that uh, he was everything that a, a young boy would expect of a World War II destroyer captain, wore his cap at a jaunty angle and, and uh, looked very gruff and stern.
2: And when did you meet your wife?
0: Well, I met my wife in 1965 at the end of a Sydney Hobart race. Uh, she lived in Hobart. I was sailing in the race and met her down there at the end of the race.
2: It's always a very happy uh, experience getting to Hobart if you're doing a Sydney to Hobart. Without doubt. Chris, if we go back through the ranks and, we, and you were a midi and then you became a subby and then the Vietnam War is happening, how did you note the public sentiment?
0: at that time,
2: changing because of the war?
0: It was very visible and very strong, and there was a lot of opposition to the war, uh, especially in the latter stages, in the late 60s, early 70s. My involvement in the Vietnam War was with the escort forces. I didn't serve on one of the ships which was on the gun line And the Navy's experience was very different in Vietnam than it was for the Army and the Air Force uh, as well. But I did witness and was very much aware of the treatment that the soldiers were subjected to when they returned and had welcome home marches and and the disdain that was expressed to them and was appalled by it. I thought it was was shocking. I, I knew what they had been through felt for them and the experiences and the loss of life which was incurred and the very tough times that that, that had. And I thought that the community's reaction was very Terrible. disturbing. And I was either in a destroyer, I was in the Duchess and the Derwent, at times when we escorted Sydney to Vungtau. I went into Vungtau and uh, remained at anchor there whilst uh, Sydney offloaded the troops and brought back equipment or loaded equipment to be brought back to Australia.
2: I think your point's very valid. That war was not a naval war. The Navy did its important task of supply. Of the three forces, we were less engaged in the fighting.
0: Yes, I think any military operation depends upon a lot of parts to get it to work successfully. Each of the parts has a a, a different role, but certainly, yes, the Navy's role was a supportive role. But then the ships on the gun line did come under fire. There was sailors killed. The Hobart was attacked. In fact, it was attacked by an, uh, an American, American ship. aircraft. So, yeah. But unfortunately, it resulted in loss of life.
2: Chris, I'd like to just spend a little bit of time on the tall ships and your experience with the Chilean tall ship, the Esmeralda, and of course the Spanish tall ship as well.
0: Yes, I was very fortunate to be selected as a liaison officer to join the Chilean training ship the Esmeralda, in 1970, when it was going to be visiting Australia as part of the bicentenary for Captain Cook's discovery of Australia. And that uh, this involved flying to Japan, joining the Esmeralda in Osaka, sailing from Osaka direct to Sydney without any ports in between, then the time in Sydney, and then sailing from Sydney to Auckland and leaving the ship in Auckland. As a keen sailor, this was marvellous to me. The only downside was that I had to bring my wedding forward a week so that I would be there and we advanced our wedding a week but then I left my wife a week later to go and spend two months at sea. (laughs) As a good sailor does. As a good sailor does. The experience with the Chileans was fantastic. There had been some loss of the actual requirement in the language. Something had been mixed up with the language. At that stage, I was a sub-lieutenant. I was just about to be promoted to lieutenant and I was promoted while I was on board the Esmeralda. But they thought we were cadets. We were assigned berths and we were allocated on the ship to the cadets' mess and that we spent our time working with the cadets who were doing their training, which uh, meant that it was pretty austere, but the Chileans were lovely people and it, uh, it was a lot of good fun and good humour. And they loved Australia when they got here, and so it was a, a great experience all around. And then I was going to say the bicentenary in 1988 as well. Yes, and the Esmeralda has a sister ship which is run by Spain. It's the Juan Sebastian Delcano. Eighteen years later, in 1988, the Juan Sebastian was visiting as part of the bicentenary of uh, 1988. It was visiting Hobart and then there was a tall ship's race from Hobart to Sydney. The captain of the Juan Sebastian Delcano was a close friend of mine and we had both spent a year together, only the previous year together, in Newport, Rhode Island at the United States Naval War College. And he invited me to join him in Hobart and then take passage from Hobart to Sydney. And again, that was a phenomenal experience. Unfortunately, the race was not a very competitive race because of the time constraints and and the requirements for the ships to be in Sydney by a certain time. But it was a marvellous experience at sea with grand dinners and functions in his cabin. You had a different sort
2: of escort duty in 74, I believe, when you were escorting the Britannia.
0: Yes, yes. I was in HMAS Torrens. And the captain at the time was David Martin, who went on to become oh, yes. Rear Admiral David Martin and Governor of uh, New South Wales. And we had a, a short period as the escort for the Britannia when she was on a South West Pacific deployment. The Queen was on board and other members of the Royal Family, including the Duke of Edinburgh, Princess Anne, Mark Phillips was there, who was also Lord Louis Mountbatten.
2: You serve on quite a number of ships in various positions. Another notable occasion has been the navigator and operator on board Hobart for the US bicentenary deployment.
0: Yes, it's the navigator and operations officer who is responsible for the planning. The the operations officer position is responsible for the planning of the the ship and, and the administration around that. Yes, in 1976, the Hobart was at short notice, committed to attend the Bicentennial celebrations and participate in an international naval review at New York. And that led to a quick whip around the world. It was codenamed Operation Phineas Fogg from around the world in 80 days. (laughs) And we spent 71 days at sea to steam around the world at quite high speed. Yeah, a lot of steaming, yeah across the Pacific through the Panama Canal and then up the east coast of America and joined in with the International Naval Review and then entered uh, New York as part of that review and spent a couple of days in New York and then we went across the Atlantic and came back through the Med and the Suez Canal.
2: Chris, could you comment? I mean, going through the Panama Canal would have been fascinating and, of course, you're not travelling then at 25 knots or whatever so you're actually sort of seeing the landscape around you. But can you talk about the Suez Canal, about how important that canal is in that geographical position around
0: the world? And how, I should say, vulnerable you are in a ship. The strategic importance is enormous in that uh, it shortens the time if you're trying to get to the Middle East from the Mediterranean, from uh, Central Europe by a number of weeks. The vulnerability, though, when you go through there, is very hard to defend against. You couldn't defend yourself. You couldn't fight your way through the Suez Canal because you haven't got the freedom of manoeuvre and you wouldn't be able to bring your weapon arcs to bear. It would be very easy to damage a ship going through the canal if there was a will to do so. It strikes me how naked
2: you feel, like you've got a powerful ship that you're in command of, yet as you say, some guy could come along from the shore and launch something at you and you could be in a lot of trouble. Yes.
0: The Americans take their carriers through the Suez Canal, so that is a real vulnerability and that would have to be carefully, very carefully assessed, uh, the, the threat.
2: In 1977, unfortunately, you spent a bit of time in hospital.
0: Yes. I contracted tuberculosis, but it uh, didn't manifest itself into the, the full-blown de- disease until uh, it was early 1977. Because we, we went through a routine of annual medicals and, and x-rays, they were able to trace it back to that I first contracted the disease in the UK a couple of years beforehand, and it laid dormant in my system. But when I had got run down, it manifested itself and ended up being hospitalised and for a four-month period.
2: Chris, the next couple of years, what happens to you with the Navy then?
0: I went through a fairly standard career for a seaman officer. I subspecialised as a warfare officer, as a principal warfare officer, and a navigator. During my lieutenant's time, which was eight years, I was the navigator and ops officer of several ships. And then I had a posting to fleet headquarters as the plans and programs officer there. Then I had my first command, HMAS Canberra, in 1984-85 as a commander.
2: And how did you find being in command of Canberra?
0: Oh, it was very special. I think any command is special. A first command is extra special. We had a a relatively new ship. It was only a few years old. I joined the ship just as it was coming out of its first refit. We had a a very enthusiastic team on board and we had 22 months of uh, a good solid program, lots of activities. The advantage of uh, joining the ship in refit was that we then came out and went through a trials period and a work-up period and so there was an opportunity to really work with the team and mould the team and get it up to a very high standard of which we, we did. And then we deployed to Southeast Asia twice during that two years I was there and we had a, a short deployment to the Southwest Pacific. We had a a very interesting operational task on the second Southeast Asian deployment dispatched to intercept a Soviet battlecruiser, which was uh, being repositioning to the Soviet Pacific fleet. And uh, we had to do a a silent intercept uh, of that ship and we remained in company with them for about five days. The battlecruiser was the Frunz and it was a nuclear-powered battlecruiser possibly the largest non-aircraft carrier warship afloat at, at, at the time, about the size of a, a battleship in a World War One battleship. And she was in company with a um, cruiser, a sovereign any class cruiser and also a Cashin class destroyer. And so it was quite a formidable task force. And we went and intercepted them and then stayed in, in close company with them, monitoring them recording whatever information we could from the ship, kept in company with them until they went into Cam Ranh Bay in Vietnam and then we uh, stayed there for a couple of days.
2: So when we say intercept you're certainly within visual, they can see you, you can see them, you're making a statement that we're watching you and even though you're in international waters you're making your presence quite clear
0: to them. Yes, it was all very civil the way we went about. We made our approach, as I said, silently, and that we were dispatched from Jakarta. And so we had to come up through the Singapore and Malacca Straits. And we did uh, this, we went through the Singapore and Malacca Straits without any radar or any radio transmission, so that there was no way of detecting and identifying us as a naval warship. We intercepted them halfway between the top of the Malacca Straits and Sri Lanka. We surprised them and we noticed no change in their transmission. We were monitoring whatever radar and radio transmissions the ships were making and and trying to gather information from these types of uh, activities that they were, were carrying out. We then joined and we stayed in very close company. We stationed ourselves about a thousand yards, half a mile, on the beam of the, this formation and we stayed in company. When, when we went back down through the Malacca Straits and the Singapore Straits, we fell in in line astern of them and they passed us their courses and speeds that they were travelling at to assist us with station keeping. And at the end of the, uh, the period when they went into Camran Bay and we didn't enter Vietnamese waters... We had an exchange of, a very cordial exchange of signals and it was approaching the Soviet Revolution or the anniversary of the Soviet Revolution and we wished them a happy anniversary.
2: Chris, you've been promoted to captain in 1985 and to commodore then in 1990. At the turn of the decade, however, trouble
0: emerges in the Gulf. Initially, I was in command of HMAS Perth and we had... uh, just completed a workup after a three year modernisation, and we were deployed to Southeast Asia. And when the Iraqis invaded Kuwait, Australia was approached to respond and, and to assist in the United Nations response. And a, a whole lot of options were looked at. And at one stage, it appeared that um, Perth might be dispatched directly to the Middle East from the, the Far East. To the the Gulf area and provide a presentation, a representation from from Australia. Unfortunately, this was not possible because we would there was a whole lot of extra things which needed to be fitted to the ship before we could uh, be deployed to to that area. And they looked at ways of doing this. At one stage, they thought we might be able to have this equipment fitted in Subic Bay, but then that was disregarded. Our moment of glory faded, and as You may recall the government responded very quickly with the dispatch of frigates, the guided missile frigates Adelaide and Darwin, along with HMAS Success, and they had a weekend's warning and they were sent off to the Gulf, initially to carry out interception operations and enforce a blockade around the Gulf area. Perth then visited Hong Kong. And while we're in Hong Kong, I received a message from the Chief of Naval Staff Secretary to say that they were looking to prepare a second group of ships to go across and relieve the Adelaide and the Darwin and the success, and that um, they would need another task group commander. And I was uh, being considered and had been selected as the task group commander which meant that uh, I had to hand over command of Perth to the second-in-command, the executive officer, in Singapore in two weeks' time and fly back to Sydney, have a week's leave. I'd be promoted to Commodore and then I was to join Maritime Headquarters. I would be embarked in the Brisbane and the Brisbane and Sydney would be the next two combatants to be going to the Gulf and we were to go through a workup then sail for the Gulf region. And we did that, we sailed in early November, the 12th of November, uh, 1990, and headed off to the Gulf to relieve the Adelaide and Darwin. My role as the task group commander was to coordinate the programs for those ships, to liaise with the other national commanders within the Gulf regions. Intercept force operations were being coordinated by the US Navy had to work closely with the American commanders and then that changed as we moved from the intercept operations to preparation for when the countdown for Saddam Hussein to move out of Kuwait. And uh, the role then became more a preparation for hostilities and our role was to support the American carriers and, as screening units on the screen of the American carriers which were in the Gulf.
2: I understand there was a period around then that the Iraqis did have some capability with these small, fast attack boats that you had to be aware of.
0: The Iraqis were a very formidable force and people often forget of how formidable they were at the start of the Gulf War. They were battle-hardened because they'd just been through an eight-year war with Iran where they demonstrated the use of chemical weapons and biological weapons as part of that. They had a very large air force of over 1,300 aircraft. They had a small but modern missile-armed naval force. The mines were a really big threat. The story's
2: not told well enough that the Navy didn't suffer the loss of any major ships because they were all doing such a good job getting rid of the mines containing these attack boats that, you know, that you didn't let them get in and get you, thankfully.
0: The the attack boats, they were destroyed very early in the war. The timeline was that the, the countdown was the 16th of January, that Iraq had to withdraw from Kuwait on the 16th of January. That timeline came and passed without Iraq withdrawing, and then... Within 48 hours, the Americans launched their attack, uh, missile attack against Iraq with Tomahawk missiles and carrier-based and land-based aircraft. Many of us will remember videos available on CNN which demonstrated that so clearly, the effectiveness of it. The battle plan was then to systematically break down all the communications that the Iraqis had so that they were unable to control their forces and also to destroy as many of their forces as possible. And between the 17th, 18th of January and the end of January, the Iraqi Navy was virtually destroyed by missile attacks against them. And at the same time, a lot of the Iraqi aircraft fled Iraq and went to Iran. Over 100 aircraft from their Air Force. It's interesting because they'd been fighting them not long ago, but then they've
2: got their religious ties and et cetera. Yes,
0: and they were concerned about the opposition that they were up against because in the intervening period before the 16th of January, there was a tremendous build up in forces ashore, and that in the Gulf, we initially had one American carrier. Just before the 16th, a second carrier came in, and in the next two weeks, two more carriers came in. So we ended up with four carrier battle groups in the Persian Gulf and then in the Red Sea there were another two carrier battle groups. So there was a lot of aircraft available from the naval side of it which was supporting equally large number of allied aircraft which were operating from land base. It was a very big build-up of forces and able to carry out a very effective bombing campaign. So around this time, you would have had a Christmas at sea, I imagine? Yes, we did, which was in the, the lead-up to that countdown. It was a very tense period, and that in fact, the interception forces were still ongoing. There was a particular ship, the Ibn Khaldun, which was heading into the Persian Gulf, and it was a protest ship which had a lot of women on board and students and to try and attract media attention and make it difficult for the ship to be boarded. The Ibn Khaldun, it was being monitored very closely as it was approaching the Gulf area. The Americans who were in charge of the interception forces, they wanted to have a multinational force of of several nations involved in the boarding because it it had the potential to be quite newsworthy and media-worthy, and that's what the Iraqis were trying to achieve. And so Sydney was assigned to that boarding. I was in the Brisbane, flew by helicopter down to join the Sydney and we steamed out of the Gulf into the Gulf of Oman, just outside the Straits of Hormuz, and took part in the boarding of the Ibn Khaldun. And that was over Christmas. That was on Christmas Day that the boarding of Ibn, I'm pretty sure it was Christmas Day or if not, We did the final rehearsal with the American forces, the American Marines, the SEALs, and the ships that they had involved with them.
2: I remember being in the maritime headquarters in Gulf One, and I don't quite understand why it happened, but our satellites could pick up information at certain times and we had to feed it to the Americans and they just couldn't get it. They relied on us. And I can still remember being amazed seeing how Saddam had these mobile SCUD launches and he'd suddenly wheel these out we could see in the maritime headquarters these SCUDs being launched and the missile being sent off towards Israel. And that's why the British sent in the SAS, you know, the Bravo to Zero story, and there was this effort to wind down these SCUD missiles. But I can remember how we had to communicate with the Americans very quickly on that, and then, you know, forces were brought to bear, and, and thankfully they were shut down because they were... Saddam was trying to drag the Israelis into it because if they got into it, you know, he was hoping it would turn into this massive you know, Jewish war versus the Sunnis and Shiites and God knows what would have happened sort of thing. So it was that wonderful
0: cooperation with the Americans that, that was excellent. You talk about the product which was coming out of Maritime Headquarters from the Maritime Intelligence Centre. It was a very high-quality product and assessment and the battle force commander on the USS Midway, I used to meet with him every two to three weeks I was discussing the product that uh, we had, the intelligence reports that we were getting, and he asked to see a copy, and I provided him a copy of our latest one, of which he was so impressed he then asked to be put on the address list so (laughs) so that he would get the report daily. And it, it was of that standard. And the intelligence during the, the Gulf War was was very interesting because the amount of effort, the amount of ordnance which was being delivered into Iraq and to break down their communications and their ability to control their forces and, and to destroy their forces was quite incredible. As I said, there were six carrier battle groups there. There were all the land aircraft as well. There were hundreds of Tomahawk missiles being sent in there. However, the intelligence assessment we were getting back was saying that it wasn't reducing the capability of the Iraqi forces and they still were quite potent. Right towards the end when the land offensive was issued, Schwarzkopf was in this position where he was starting to run out of all these smart weapons, the Tomahawk missiles and the laser-guided bombs and everything which was being delivered. Everybody was very concerned that even despite such an effort, that the Iraqi forces were being reported as being in a very capable situation. And so then when it was because he was running out that he decided to go ahead with the land offensive. And it was considered to be quite high risk at the time that it was going to be a lot bloodier battle than it turned out to be. And nobody forecasts that it was only going to that the Iraqi forces would completely capitulate within a hundred hours.
2: After your time in the Gulf, you were recognised
0: for your good service. Uh, yes, I was very fortunate. I became an officer in the Order of Australia in the military division. I also received a bronze medal from the United States and I got an, an order from uh, the Saudi Arabian government as well, the order of King Fahd bin Abdul Aziz, third class
2: Australia hadn't been to war since Vietnam, and we didn't know how this war with Saddam was going to go, and the fact that the naval part of it went very well, and then the land part of it went very well. Again, it says a lot of the wonderful planning and the execution of our forces, but that's appropriate recognition for the Navy's good work
0: in that period. I look back on that with a lot of pride at the state of the ships, the readiness of the ships. To participate in whatever was thrust against us. The workups that we went through were extremely strenuous and very demanding, and we had to prepare ourselves for every facet of naval warfare other than anti-submarine. There was no submarine threat. There was also on top of that was the concern about chemical and biological weapons as well, which really compounds and makes the whole defense of a ship more complex. The ships did reach an extremely high standard. Both Sydney and Brisbane in the Gulf spent 47 days at sea after the initial attack and were there right through until the very end or very close to, to the end when the Iraqi forces surrendered. The level of readiness they got to, and when I compare that to my earlier days in the Navy when I first went to sea and the very rudimentary way that the ships worked up and the preparation, it was very different. It was far more professional. We were in a far better state to be able to react to anything which could be thrown against us.
2: Chris, can we continue on with your career with the Navy, including your promotion then to Rear Admiral?
0: Once I came back from the Gulf, I had Two postings in Canberra as a Commodore. One was in Navy office, in the policy area of Navy office, which was a good key position, very much involved in the future plans and development for the Navy and very close to the seat of power, working closely with the Chief of Naval Staff and and his deputy. I was then posted to headquarters, Australian Defence Force, the, the joint headquarters of the three services, into a position as the Director-General of the Joint Operations Division. It was another excellent job in that the Division was responsible for the link between the Defence Force and Government with regards to the deployment of troops overseas and how Defence Forces could respond to requests from the Government and requests from the United Nations for the use of forces. At the time, we had about 2,000 Australian troops deployed overseas. It was before the very large peacekeeping Timor, but we had a large number of people in Cambodia. But a total of about 2,000 Australian forces, and we had to monitor their deployments overseas and ensure that everything was happening as required by the government.
2: Chris, could you further elaborate on what you did as an Admiral?
0: When I was promoted as an Admiral, the position I was promoted into was the Assistant Chief of Naval Staff Personnel, which was the head of the Naval Personnel Division, which was my first encounter into the personnel side of things, but it was very illuminating and I learnt a lot and there were some real issues there which needed to be dealt with, and particularly with manpower planning as new. Types of ships were coming into service, and there were a lot of uh, important issues to be addressed there. I was there for about fifteen months, and then I was moved to become the fleet commander and the maritime commander, Australia. In my mind, the best job in the whole of the Australian Defence Force, with full command of the fleet and a very rewarding and satisfying position to have. While I was there, it was a particularly interesting time in that there was a new Chief of Defence Force, General John Baker, had just taken over and he had some very strong ideas on what he wanted to do at the operational level of the Australian Defence Force. He thought that Australia had got to the stage of maturity where we should be able to plan and conduct our own campaigns. In the past, three traditional levels of warfare, the strategic, which is the involvement of the government and the Defence Force, the interface there, the operational is the planning of campaigns and the tactical is the actual fighting of the wars. Australia has in the past provided troops at the tactical level ships and aircraft at the tactical level, and the campaigns have been planned by others. And General Baker was of the opinion that we needed to put in place an organisation which could do that campaign preparation and planning. What had been done in the past was each of the services had a separate commander, a land commander, an air commander and a maritime commander. And if there was a joint exercise which required, or joint operation which required two or three services to work together, one of the Joint Commanders would be nominated as the Lead Joint Commander. General Baker's idea was was that there would be a permanent Lead Joint Commander, and he established a position of the Commander Australian Theatre. To transition to that, he set up an interim arrangement where there was a spare building alongside Maritime Headquarters, which became the Headquarters Australian Theatre, and I was appointed as the Interim Commander Australian Theatre, as well as being the Maritime Commander. And we were given a whole lot of tasks we had to do to prepare for the eventual manning of that headquarters on a full-scale basis, and also a lot of contingency plan. We had a small skeleton staff in the Australian Theatre Headquarters. And so it was a very busy period of doing both jobs. I did that for about 10 months before General Jim Connolly was appointed as the Commander Australian Theatre. When I finished my time, I did 22 months as the Maritime Commander, Slant Commander Australian Theatre interim. I returned to Canberra as the Deputy Chief of Naval Staff. And this was at a very busy period in Canberra, as they all periods seem to be busy down there. But there was a lot going on with the defence efficiency review, which led to a defence reform program. We were moving headquarters from the old buildings to the new Russell complex and setting all that up and implementing the quite significant changes which were brought in by the defence reform program. And I spent just over two years, two years and three months as the Deputy Chief of Naval Staff.
2: What have you done since leaving the service?
0: My departure wasn't all that planned. I wasn't expecting to leave when I did. And so it was fairly short notice. I moved back to Sydney. I didn't want to go into defence industry, but I wanted to stay working. And initially I thought that I would look for some private sector type opportunity. And I came back to Sydney and, and started pursuing that. Shortly after, I realised that probably my greatest strength and asset was within the public sector, within working with government. But I decided I'd like a change of government and move from federal to state. And I ended up with a position in the New South Wales Premier's Department, heading up a small unit infrastructure coordination unit in the Premier's department. After being there for about 18 months, I was approached to see if I would like to go to Newcastle as the Chief Executive of the Port Corporation. I was then went through a selection process for that and moved to Newcastle as the Chief Executive of the Port Corporation which was an excellent job. Newcastle was an excellent place to to work and I thoroughly enjoyed the time there. It was a state-owned corporation. I had responsibilities to a portfolio minister and I also had responsibilities to shareholders ministers plus a board. So the governance was uh, quite complex. My portfolio minister was Michael Costa and uh, he was the minister for transport. He approached me one day and asked if I would like to return to Sydney to become the chief executive of what was the Waterways Authority. I did that and came and initially had to conduct a review there. Uh, In part of that review, it changed its name to New South Wales Maritime. It was the maritime regulator for the state and responsible for marine safety of recreational and commercial vessels and for the administration of the ports. I spent four years there as the chief executive of New South Wales Maritime.
2: And Chris, just following that theme of
0: safety, you were very involved in the Sydney to Hobart committees I've had a long history with the Hobart race. As I mentioned right at the start, I started sailing quite young, about a 10-year-old, and the Naval College provided me with an opportunity to venture into ocean racing very early. And by the time I graduated from the Naval College, I had sailed in two Hobart races, Sydney to Hobart races, and did a third one uh, during my midshipman's time as well. Eventually I did 10 Sydney to Hobart yacht races. That's a lot. Uh, yes, but it was spread over a long time. And at some stage it was a like a busman's holiday because I was spending time at sea and then get back into port and if I had the weekend off I might go off sailing. But uh, one of my best strategic moves was that I met my wife at the end of the 1965 Hobart race. We were married a few years later, but her family was from Hobart and so she always had an interest in the Hobart race as well and didn't mind me sailing off to Hobart every now and then because it allowed her to go, go and, and spend see her time family. with her family and they always were interested in the race and, and the boats that I, I well, well, was It's in. that
2: big event in Hobart, you know, yes. after Christmas it's the Sydney to Hobart and Hobart is the place in Australia to be at that time. Yes, and still is.
0: From my time at New South Wales Maritime, where we were the state regulator, I got involved in a lot of the regulation for recreational boats and I became involved with Yachting Australia and became, after I left New South Wales Maritime and joined the National Safety Committee, I was the chairman of the race committee in the years 2000 and 2001 and that was shortly after the 1998 race when there were six people lost their lives and the tragedy of of that race. And in fact, I had a short notice of my position as the chairman of the race committee in the year 2000 because the coroner's report was coming out in the month of November, October, November. There was some criticism of aspects of the race administration and I was approached to see if I would be chair of the race committee and address concerns and, and see how the administration may be improved.
2: Chris, I can still remember those words, mayday, 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 this is Winston Churchill, we are taking water, or perhaps words to that effect. You know, six lives lost on Winston Churchill in that race, worst race in modern times. Where do you go to from that?
0: It certainly was a shocking event, a tragedy. And the CYC had carried out a review of what had happened and they had introduced a lot of good things. And there were some tremendous changes which spread internationally. One in particular, the Safety at Sea and Survival Course, the S C course, which a percentage of the crew have to have completed and it goes through the use of all the life-saving equipment and what to do in emergencies and and there's practical evaluations and tests and drills that they have to do. It's a brilliant course and it's been adapted by races such as the Volvo Ocean Race and uh, round-the-world races as well. But that was an Australian initiative which came out of that 98 race.
2: Chris, unless you've actually sailed in into Sydney to Hobart or gone through terrible seas like there are down at Bass Strait, it's very hard to explain to people how terrible the seas can
0: be. Were any of your trips under bad weather like that? Oh, well, certainly. In fact, I think the east coast of Australia is one of the roughest stretches of water in the world. The storm weather comes through from the south, but you have a current running down the Easter coast and at times can run up to four knots. And so when you get the wind against the current, you get very steep waves and waves without any backs. Particularly in small boats, it can become quite damaging because the boat just goes through the wave and launches into the air and falls onto the next wave. And we've seen it over the years in the Hobart race where very capable and sound boats have come out here from overseas But when they've been put through these conditions, they start to delaminate or have major structural damage. It is a very rough section of water. That was our backyard. That's where we worked. The Sydney-Jarvis Bay exercise areas, and occasionally we had horrendous weather coming through there. We were fortunate that you could seek shelter in Jarvis Bay or whatever, but some of the roughest weather I'd ever experienced was going across the Great Australian Bight. And again, the Southern Ocean, uh, coming out of the Southern Ocean, very big swells, different swells and and not as dangerous as some of the ones you get off the east coast of Australia and down around the Bass Strait. Chris, you've had a
2: remarkable career. Thank you very much for coming and sharing your wonderful story today and especially thank you for your very long and great service to this nation. Thank you very much, Angus.
1: For a land perspective of the First Gulf War, check out in Season 4, Number 82, John Cantwell, Volume 1.
2: Only to be uh, shot at and cut off and pushed into enemy territory and found myself on the wrong side of the enemy lines, surrounded by Iraqis in the middle of the night with a British tank organization busily attacking them with me in the middle of it. Meanwhile, American helicopters were trying to shoot me with missiles.
1: You can follow this show at Life on the Line podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at L-O-T-L pod on Twitter, and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.